0: I did this long series for the past, like I think, four months on the on uh, the book of Joshua, and then I moved. Uh, just for a little while, I'm going to be doing the parables of Jesus. I'm uh, not in any particular order, but uh, I'm, I'm trying to draw the lessons that he he has for us through these amazing parables, these stories. He's a storyteller. I love storytellers. Who likes people that tells good stories, right? I love uh, people that tell good stories. I think I'm a pretty decent storyteller. When I tell stories, uh, it's all. It's it always ends up about like how, how crappy of a person I am. But um, I did like a lot of bad things in the past. And everyone was like, "Whoa, oh, what did you do? And I was like, oh, I did these things. And it ends up bad. But Jesus has these amazing parables and these stories. And uh, he uses these, you know, the like agricultural or like, you know, like social things to draw up these lessons. So that some, some people get it. Some people are able to take it home and just like meditate on it, think about it. And they're able to draw the lesson. Some people, it just goes right over their heads, right? They're just like, what are you talking about? We're talking about a C, right? So today we'll be looking at the parable of the of the ten Minas. I know it's spelled like Mina or my wife Mina. And some people I've like I've I've had I've studied, I've researched this, I've I've talked to different people, I've uh, heard other preachers and I've heard very respectable preachers call it Minas, and I've heard other very respectable preachers and theologians call it minas. And, then, and when you look at the Greek lexicon and then you, like, click on the little sound button, it says Mina, right? And so I don't know, but I'm going to call it Mina because when, when I was young, I think I was in uh, high school or junior high, and we read this, uh, there was a Bible study leader that corrected me, and he said, it's called Mina. And so since then, it's been seared into my mind. I, was just, I think it was, like, just, like, the embarrassment of it. And so now every time I read this, I see it as Mina. And so I'm going to call it Mina. And Jesus has come. In this in the book of in the book of Luke he's come to this conclusion right he's he's been traveling he's been doing his ministry but now he has decided that this will be his last tri- trip into Jerusalem right? um, he's been ministering for about three years and uh, it's time and he's been trying to tell his disciples like hey you guys right I'm, I'm about I'm gonna go to Jerusalem and I, they're gonna you know, arrest me and, and I'm gonna die and for the sins of this world and the uh, the disciples look at him and they just don't get it it's just like it just doesn't click for them, right? Even as they're like come going into the city, they still don't understand what Jesus is talking about. And so as he's going uh, into this, uh, passing through this, this road and he's, he's traveling through the city of Jericho, he approaches uh, the city of Jericho and uh, before he comes to Jerusalem, in the chapter before the one that Nina just read, uh, he meets the rich young ruler. You guys know about the, the story of the rich young ruler. He's a very rich man. He's like a government official or something. He comes up to Jesus and he's like, "What do I have to do to get eternal life?" And he's like, "Well, don't murder people. Duh. You know, like, don't steal. Don't commit adultery. You know, don't do these things." And he's like, "Well, I don't do any of those things. Like, what, what more?" And he's like, "Well, sell everything you own, right? Give to the poor and follow me." And he and it, by the way, that's not the message that Jesus is. He's not telling all of us that we have to sell everything that we have to, to the poor. He's basically saying like, "Hey, following me is has a there's a cost." And, and you, you literally, I have to be your number one. I have to be your everything, right? But for this, Jesus knew what was on this man's heart. And so Jesus, when he says this, the, the rich young ruler, he, he goes away sad because he was very rich. He was like a baller, right? He probably had like many, you know, like sheep and donkeys. and I don't know. Like he had a lot of wealth. But he was a very rich man. And so then as he hears these words from Jesus, he, he takes it and he's like, oh, he's depressed because he knows that he can't do this He knows that he can't give up everything that he owns and give it to the poor and follow him. And so, uh, you know, and then he tells them that it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than a rich man going to heaven. And then in Luke 18, uh, I believe this is the next slide, uh, the disciple says, then who can be saved? But he said, what is impossible with man is possible with God. And Peter says, see, we have left our homes and followed you. And he said to them, Truly I say to you, there is no one who has left house or wife or brother or parent or children for the sake of the kingdom of God who will not receive many times more in this life and in the age to come eternal life. Now, shortly after this, Jesus has this encounter, and, and Mina read about it with Zacchaeus, right? You know, who, you know the song from When You're Long about Zacchaeus, climb the Sikh Well, he was a tax collector who is considered by the Jews one of the worst people that you can be. They hated tax collectors. You know, it had a lot to do with their with be, them being under the, the Roman rule. And these were actual Jews. So they were one of them that would like they, they Rome would be like, Hey, I'm gonna we have these you know positions. That they would bid on these rights to collect taxes from certain areas. And so you know these Jews said, Oh, you know like you know I would like to be a tax collector. And then so then they would you know whatever they would probably like you know grease the right people and they would get this this position. And then Caesar in Rome only, like, wanted a certain amount from, like, Judea, right? Like, oh, well, we expect this many taxes from Judea, right? And so then as long as he collects that much, whatever he made on top of that would just become his. So he was a very rich man. Um, and, and the Bible says that he was a chief tax collector. So he was, like, the, the best of the worst men, right? He was, like, he, he, was, he, was, he was even hated more than the, the average tax collector. And he was already very short, right? He was a, he was a wee little man. And he sees Jesus in the crowd, and he wants to he wants to see him. He's like, oh, I heard about this man. He, he gets excited, and he wants to see him. But because he's so short, he, he runs, and then he can't see him over all of the people, right? And so then he climbs a sycamore tree, and then he looks at Jesus. And then Jesus, realizing Zacchaeus is watching him, right? Jesus knew what was on the hearts of man, right? So he goes up to Zacchaeus. He says, Zacchaeus, hurry, come down, for I must stay at your house tonight. This is the first time in the Bible, I, I believe, that Jesus actually invites Himself into somebody's house, right? And Jesus invites He invites Himself to Zacchaeus' house, and and He knew the state of Zacchaeus' heart. On the outside, everybody saw this despicable tax collector, right? Ugh, tax collector, right? Like there is no modern-day equivalent to a tax collector. Like imagine the most hated person that you can imagine, and I know you guys have some people in your mind. I'm not gonna say it, right? And then, it w- and then imagine them like lording it over you, right? And so, um, he was the chief tax collector, and and he goes and he- but he actually knew what was on his heart. And then Jesus saw something completely different. Jesus saw his heart, and he saw the childlike faith that he had. He's a, he's a government official, and he's running. These men never ran back then. Running was a sign of like, like it was like like you know, if you were like dignified and you never ran. Children ran, right? Like servants ran, right? But Rich people, right? Like you know, the Pharisees and the Sadies, they never ran. But this guy he runs. And not only does he run, but you can't see, so he actually climbs a tree, right? No one climbed <laughs> trees back then. It was it wasn't the thing to do. Like right? right, like like they considered climbing a tree something that like a slave would do or a servant or somebody that was of the lesser class would climb a tree, but a dignified man would not ever climb a tree. It was okay case, he climbed a tree, and so God Jesus knew what was on his heart. And while everybody's grumbling that Jesus is, like, with Zacchaeus and going to his home, Jesus saw this faith in, the, in his heart. And it says, it says, and Zacchaeus stood and said to the Lord, Behold, Lord, the half of my goods I give to the poor. Is that the right one? Yes. To the poor. And if I have defrauded anyone of anything, I restore it fourfold. So, he, so he's saying, like, hey, if I... If I, you know, I'm first of all gonna take half all my that I owe. I'm going to give to the poor. And if I've, like, defrauded him, I'm going to pay them back fourfold. And this wasn't Zacchaeus buying salvation, but it was a sign of the effect that Christ had on his life. It was an overflow of the transformation that had happened as he encountered the living God. He encounters Jesus, he encounters the living God, and he's like, oh, my goodness, right? His life is changed. Jesus says it says and Jesus said to him today salvation has come to this house since he also is a son of Abraham for the son of man came to seek and save the lost one of the, my favorite lines in all the bible and remember just a few cha- like literally just a few verses a, a half chapter ago Jesus tells them how difficult how difficult it is for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God for it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle Than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. Those who heard it then, who can be saved? But he said, "What is impossible with man is possible with God." Like this is like it's the juxtaposition of it all, right? It's like Jesus saying, like it's easier to like for a camel to go through it, which is impossible. But then he's like, hey, with God it's possible. And then he demonstrates it. Like like, shortly after that, he sees this very rich man. Who's actually a sinner, considered a sinner, who everybody detests, and he's like, he goes into the kingdom right? because what? If, because of what? Because he accepted the living God into his heart. He was like, oh, I met the living God, and I'm changed. Right? And so, you know, that's what's happening, right? Zacchaeus, a very rich man, right, actually, his encounters Jesus, right, he receives the gospel in a sense. And, and, then, and you see immediately the fruit of that gospel. He's like, man, I'm going to give half of what I wrote to the poor. And, and, and if I've robbed anybody, man, I'm going to pay them back fourfold, right? If that happens, what's going to happen to him? He's going to go broke, right? Like, all the people that he wrote, if you pay them back four times what he's supposed to have taken, then he's literally going to go, oh. he's, he doesn't care. He's like, man, I, 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 I need to make things right. You see the transformation in his heart. And in the midst of this situation, I did all that as backstory to tell, Jesus tells them this parable. Uh, the parable of the ten minas is very similar to the t- parable of the ten of the talents, uh, but th- it's, they're very different, right? And it actually tells a different um, story, and it's in a different part of Jesus's ministry. And today I want to talk about this parable, and I want to say why Jesus told this parable, and who he is telling this parable to. First, the writer of Luke tells us he tells us that the parable th- that tells him why Jesus told him this parable. He says. Because he was near to Jerusalem, and because they supposed that the kingdom of God was to appear immediately. And Jesus was doing his ministry. Many people followed him. A lot of people started, thousands of people started following him. Not because they believed that he was the son of God, but because they thought that he was going to establish the kingdom of Israel. They had been under this oppressive Roman rule for years and years, and and they're getting tired of it and they're like, "Oh, Jesus came." And he's like, "He might he might be the Messiah. He might be the one to come and, and and overthrow this Roman government." They thought that Jesus would come and have a military like military kingdom and come like David and knock out all of the the Romans and establish the kingdom of Israel. You know, they've seen him heal the sick, cast out demons. He's seen him feed thousands of people with some fish and some bread, right? And so there was a lot of people following Jesus because they thought that their lives would their physical lives would change very quickly. They actually thought that Jesus, as Jesus entered Jerusalem, that He was going to come and establish the kingdom of Israel. But Jesus knew that it would not be. It would be a long time before He would return, right? And He knew that most of the people that followed Him didn't understand it. They didn't get it. They didn't understand like this this thing that He was trying to convey to them. And so He tells them this parable. He does it in a way where all of humanity. Falls under one of these categories. Right? This is the amazing part about Jesus' story. That right? He tells His story, and all of us in here, right, and all of the people that that you know out, out there, and they fall within one of these categories. It's amazing. It's a parable, and Jesus all He He would tell parables based on things that people knew and understood. He would use agriculture. Right? He would talk about seed, talk about plants, talk about trees, right? He'd also you know, talk about like, you know, the, the son, the parable son, I mean, the, the prodigal son that would go in. This is all like, you know, Jewish rule, like that the, the, the son is supposed to get an inheritance, right? And, and all of these things. He tells these stories, but this is the, fir- the only story that he actually uses an actual historical event to draw the life, draw people into this story. He uses an event that happened um, in, in Israel's history. And then he actually used it to bring life into this history. There was a, a, a king. His name was Herod the Great. Right? He, was, he was king over the area of Judea and, and Samaria and all these different areas. And he died, and he left his kingdom to three, uh, three of his sons. Right? This, is, this is from uh, the historian Josephus. And he talks about how um, in the Roman Empire, Caesar was the ultimate head, Caesar Augustus. He was like the main man. He was emperor over the whole entire empire the Roman Empire. But he would like allow uh, allow under kings, kings like within nations to rule the the general area because it was so vast and it would take them like almost a year to get to Rome, right? Or like I don't know how long, but like like the information it would, they didn't have the internet, right? Like you don't have like Donald Trump tweets like going off like you know three in the morning and like you know all these different things. You didn't you didn't have this back then, right? So it was very hard to govern from Rome, sitting in, in Rome and trying seeing what's happening in like Samaria. So he would allow these kings to rule in these general areas, and Herod was one of the kings. He was in charge of like the, the what what is now like the area of Israel and and that in um, that area. And when someone became a king, they would have to go to like go to Rome and ask Caesar, ask get Caesar's permission to be king. He needed to be get his permission, and he would anoint him king, and then he would return to the country and begin his rule. Well. Judea and the area that, that uh, Israel is right now was actually given to Herod Archelaus, right? And he was, he was, a, he was a big jerk, right? Um, he was very like, he had, a, he had an inferiority complex. I don't know why, you know, he reminds me of some people, but like, he, he, was, he was a big jerk, right? And so uh, he ended up um, killing 3,000 Jews, right? He, he killed 3,000 people in the temple right, because he wanted to kind of show off his strength and all these things were happening. Right and, um, you know when you read the story that Josephus tells it's, it's more like vivid and it's more active, but he kills three thousand people and then uh and then he as he goes to Rome to get permission to rule, fifty Jewish men follow him to Rome to tell Caesar Augustus like, hey, we don't want this man over us, right this man is a tyrant, this man is like he killed all these people he's gonna he's a, he's, a, he's a bad man we don't want this this man over us and and according to Josephus and other uh, the, uh, the Other historians, this is actually something that happened in Jewish history. So, and it actually happened in the area of Jericho, right? And so, this actually is something that people know, like firsthand. And as Jesus tells the story, they're like, ah, like I can find myself in this story. I can, I can see myself in this story. This is a story that I can, I can, you know, like, like I, I understand because you can tell that it's like lines up with this thing that happened in our story. And so Jesus uses this event to highlight the parable that he tells him. And, and we'll see the irony of this later on. But this is how the parable goes, right? Uh, it says, A nobleman went into a far country to receive for himself a kingdom and then returned, calling ten of his servants. He gave them ten minas and, and, and said to them, Engage in business until I come. But his citizens hated him and sent a delegation after him, saying, we do not want this man to reign over us. Like Archelaus, a nobleman, goes to a far off country to receive a kingdom. Now we know that re- from reading this parable that the nobleman is Jesus. Right? He's very different from Archelaus. And Jesus is trying to relate to the listener that he's going to be a while before he fully establishes the kingdom. It's not going to be this immediate thing that happens as he goes into Jerusalem. It's actually... Gonna, there's there, there there's going to be some things that happen we know some of the things that happen is that he he dies he hangs on the cross and then he resurrects and then he goes up to heaven and he, and, and he he'll be there um, for a while and then uh, and so he this is one of the reasons why he's he's telling this this this, this parable is that this kingdom of God is not going to happen right away and Jesus is trying to to relate to the listeners that there's going to be this period and, and, and like the nobleman that goes off to this country, right? Like, back then, it took, like, months, sometimes even a year, to go off to a different country and come back. It's not like now. They didn't have KTX, and they didn't have cars, and they didn't have, like, you know, these, these, you know, airplanes and things to get to, like, you know, Rome or... They had to travel. They, a lot of them had to either walk or ride on, like, mules or donkeys and carts that would take them a long time. And so he's telling the story that it's going to be a while before this kingdom is established. And we know that Jesus is with us, you know, through the Holy Spirit. He is with us, right? We can experience him. But right now, he's seated in heaven at the right hand of God. Who believes that? Who believes that he's alive? That he's risen? That he is actually seated at the right hand of God? That he, he? There's a man, flesh and blood, a Jewish man, you know, with hairy arms. I always say that because I believe that Jesus had hairy arms. Is, you know, they all have. You know, they had curly hair and like. He, he, he looks like a Jewish man and he's sitting in heaven and he's in, interceding for us. Right? And the nobleman, before he leaves, he, he gives 10 of his servants 10 minas, one mina each, and the mina was a large sum of money. It wasn't like a huge amount of money. When you talk about the talents, the talent was a huge amount of money. It was actually, it was not a currency, but it was a weight, right? Talent, and if you look at a picture of what a talent should be, it's like a boulder like this big, right? Huge sum of money. But a mina was considered, you know, I've heard different people talk about it, but it's either like three to five months uh, of, of wages for a laborer. It's so about, you know, like not a huge amount of money, but it's not like you know, tiny either. It's a significant sum of money. And before he leaves, he tells them to engage in business until I come back. He tells them to use this this, this mina, use this, what I'm giving you, work with it, you know, like, like, you know, Work on it and, and get it to, you know, like, so that when I come back, you have something to show me. Now, Jesus mentions that this his citizens of the nobleman hated him and sent a delegation after him saying, we do not want this man to reign over us, you know. People are bearing witness with this. They're like, oh, like, I can see this, right. Like, I would, I would be one of those people. Like, you know, they're actually able to see that, um, you know, that, that they would be somebody that would go and do this. They don't. They don't see the irony of it. Already they can imagine themselves in this story, and they know how this is going to go and how this is going to end. And Jesus tells them that the nobleman returned and called for his servants to come and give an account. And they come, and they begin to tell the nobleman what they had ha- what happened to the mina that they've been given. And the, and the first came before him, saying, Lord, your mina has made ten minas more, and he said to him, "Well done, good servant, because you have been faithful in a, little, in a very little, you shall have authority over ten cities." And the second came, saying, "Lord, your mina had given, had made five minas." And he said to him, "And you are to be over five cities." Now this this first category I, I want to call the good, right? the, the good servants. Right. The first one takes the master's mina and turns it into ten. The second turns it into five. Now, let's try to understand what, the, what Jesus is talking about, what he's alluding to when he's talking about the minor. And I believe that what the minor is is the gospel of Jesus Christ. It's, it's what God gives us, right? he gives us. He gives us himself. He gives us this news of the gospel that is able to transform in us and change us and, and, and be so much more in us than just a ticket to heaven. Right? All ten servants are given the same amount. It's not like one was given more. They're all given one minor. And we're all given the same gospel. We're all given the same saving grace. We're all given the same opportunities to serve God and and, and serve Him in our lives. But not all of us are going to do the same things with the opportunity of the gospel that we are given. You see, the gospel is not just a ticket to heaven, like I said. A lot of people use it like a ticket, oh, I have this ticket to heaven, and I'm gonna put it in my pocket, and then I'm gonna go on doing my business. It's not just something that we receive and we hold on to so that we can get to heaven. The gospel is an opportunity for us to take it and do what God has called us to do. He called us to advance the kingdom of God. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. To do what? To do His work. As He's in heaven, He wants us to do. He gave us this great commission. You know, the great commission is evangelism, but it's so much more than just evangelism. It's so that we we transform within, right? You guys don't understand that the great commission means that we must first transform ourselves. We 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 become the man that God really wants us to be. We start to walking righteously with God. We start to walk in line with the Holy Spirit, and as we're in line with the Holy Spirit, God's going to start to send us, right? maybe to Africa or maybe to like these other countries or or maybe just to your workplace, right? or maybe just to your school or maybe just to your family. But it it, it starts. The gospel is, is is that thing that's supposed to transform us. It's supposed to grow in us. It's supposed to grow like a seed. I preached on it a few weeks ago, like a, a seed. It right, doesn't remain a seed. It grows and it becomes this exponentially like, bigger thing than it actually started out as. And that's what the gospel is. We receive the gospel. But it's supposed to grow advance and advance and transform us. As we And as it transforms us, we transform the world around us. James said, faith without works is dead. Meaning if the gospel is truly in you, it's supposed to produce faith. The works doesn't save us, but if we truly experience in us saving grace, it will produce us the fruit of that grace and that mercy. And the faithful servants are able to produce this fruit from the meanings that they are given. The gospel is in us producing dividends. Who knows what dividends are, right? Like stock dividends, right? When I, I took business. Uh, it's like when you invest in a stock and you hold on to it, whatever money that it makes, it gets... It, given out, and it's, it's, it's whatever that initial investment produces for you. right? It's a dividend. Right? And, and the, the, these good servants are able to produce these dividends. The gospel will continue to remain in us and produce the increase and in the fruit that God wants us to have as we are able to transform the world around us. Right? And the part of the, the faithful servants shows us the character of the good servant The character of the the master. I want you guys to look at this, right? First, the first came saying, "Lord, your mina has made ten minas more." Right? His words show like humility. He didn't say, "Master," or like, "Hey man, this mina, I took this mina, and then I did business, and then I made it into ten minas." He doesn't say that. What does he say? He says, "The mina that you gave me, right, produced." Ten minus. What you gave me is able to produce ten more. It, it, you see the faithfulness and the honoring in, his, in, in the words. Right? You don't see, you don't see like any kind of like pride. You don't see any kind of like taking credit for this. But you say the the miner that you gave me, right? You remember you gave me the, it produced nine more, and now I have ten. You see the faithfulness, and you see the, the humility in the heart of the servant. And it's not about what we do. It's not about what we do, but ultimately, it's what the gospel does in us. It's not about what the what the servant did, but it's what the miner was at, able to produce as as he invested. So many times we think like, "Oh man, I have to do this." Yes, right. And I'm, I, I, I've been pre- I've been preparing for my next week's sermon last week as well, and 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 one of the points is like, yeah, like we're supposed to like do things for God, but God is all about relationship. He's not about function. You gotta, you gotta, I'm not gonna preach it here, so I'm gonna give you a little bit, right? This is a tangent. But like, what always existed before creation? You know the one thing that existed before God created anything? The one thing that existed before God created anything was relationship. God never had to create relationship. And in in John 17, as Jesus is saying his prayer, he talks about like, hey, God, like, like, he's like, Father, like, now give me the glory that I had with you before the foundation of the world. He's like, he's been on this earth, and he's been separated from the Father. He's connected through prayer and intercession. But he's like, I want to experience what it was for us to be in this union before the foundation of the world. That's relationship. And he prays that over his people, that, God, I pray that they will be one as we were one. And, and the, the amazing part is that God is always about relationship before function. He never want. He's not gonna tell us to do something if we if, if our relationship with with him is not in that place. He's not gonna He's not gonna say like, "Oh, good, like you're doing a great job." When we're all praying to God and we're doing this, you know, like we're worshiping God, but our relationship with the people around us suck. We hate our coworker. I ha- hate my dad, right? I hate my kids, but I love you, God, right? And God's gonna be like, "Dude, you you're missing it, right? It's all about relationship." Like, I, what I want for you is unity and oneness. I want you to be able to love one another. Right? Love is, is, there's a reason for love. The, the reason why God wants us to love is because it's supposed to create relationships. Right? And so so this man, he gives him this mina, and, and it's not about what he did, but he's like, hey, your mina did this. It's like, God, the gospel that you gave me produced this life for me. Right? When I see Jesus, right, face to face when, when, when he comes back or, you know, I die or whatever, I want to be able to say, Jesus, the gospel that you placed inside me was able to produce this life. And yeah, it might not be as big as Billy Graham's. One one pers- servant made ten minors, right? The other person, five. There were ten servants, and we only know of three. How you, there were some that only doubled. Here's the minor that you gave me, and here's another one. You know, like, but still, at least there's increase. And it's the increase that the gospel, right, and we don't all have the same opportunities. We don't have all the same kind of thought process. And we have different things in our life that can bring us down. But at the end, the gospel in us is supposed to create this fruit. Right? It's to create this increase. And we see here in the response by the nobleman, the character of our God. He tells the servants, and he said to him, and he said to them, well done, good servant, because you have been faithful in a very little, you shall have authority over ten cities. The servant was given a minor. It's not a good, it's not a huge amount of money. It's not a lot. And that's like what we have to offer to God. It's like, God, I can do this for you. I can, I can do this for you. It's not a lot. We can do what we can, but in the scheme of things, it's not a lot. All the things that we can do for, for God is not a lot. Some are able to do more. Some are able to do less. But but at the end of the day, the minas that we give to the noblemen is not much. Some made ten. Some made five. There are a few. I bet they, they had maybe three or two or just one. But look at what the nobleman's response is. It says, I will put you in charge of cities. You take $30,000 and you make $60,000 and then this guy's like, you know what? I'm going to put you in charge of cities. He is a generous God. He's a loving God. He's a God that wants to share His glory with us. God is zealous about His glory. In the Old Testament, He says, I will not share my glory with no one, right? And yet, in Christ, He shares His glory with us. John 17, 22. It says, The glory that you have given me, I have given to them, that they may be one even as we are one. He called you, 2 Thessalonians 2.14, He called you to this through our gospel, that you might share in the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. We have a God that, that loves us, that's generous, and He's willing to share His glory with us. Our God is a God who would sacrifice His one and only Son to save and redeem us. That is a generous and loving God. And we see the generosity in the way that the Master rewards the servants makes him 10 minus and the rewards are right, for him to be over cities. It's the exponential di- an increase between what they produce and what they are rewarded. and we have to realize that God rewards us not based on what we can do right but he rewards us based on based on his heavenly glory and heavenly riches. It says Philippians 4:19 and my God will supply every need of yours according to his riches in glory in Christ Jesus. Ephesians 3.16, that according to the riches of his glory, he may grant you to be strengthened with the power through his spirit in your inner being. He doesn't reward us based on what we can do. He doesn't reward us on what we think we're worth, but he rewards us and he he, he gives to us based on his amazing heavenly glory. The guy made four minus. He took one. And then he gave him five, so there's, he made four minus. And he's like, you're going to be over five, cities." That is the generosity of our God. And God will reward us when we are faithful to him. Remember what Jesus said you know, earlier. Um, is that out when we're talking about the, the rich young ruler, and they're like, hey, I've, the disciples are like, I've, lost, I've left my home. I left my parents to follow you. And he says, Truly I say to you, there is no one who has left house or wife or brothers or parents or children for the sake of the kingdom of God who will not receive many times more in this time and in the age to come eternal life. In this life and in the age to come. God's going to reward us in this life. It may not be money, right? but God blesses his children. And then you imagine what is waiting for us in heaven as we live this faithful, as we continue to follow him and being led by his spirit and allowing the gospel to, to, to bear fruit in our lives. There are rewards. There are crowns waiting for us in heaven. Jesus tells us that we have rewards in heaven. Matthew 5.12, rejoice and be glad, for your reward is in heaven is great, for in, in the same way they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Revelations 22.12, behold, I am coming quickly, and my reward is with me to render to every man according to what he has done. Your faithfulness will not go on. Your faithfulness will not go on. Worse. And you continue to follow God. Yeah, the, your friends might be having more fun. Yeah, those dishonest people might be making all that money, right? Yeah, that person might have gotten the job because he lied on his resume, right? But at the end, as you continue to follow faithfully, The path that God lays out for you, there will be rewards, amazing rewards. You guys have to realize it. So we saw the good servant. Now let's take, let's talk about the other category. Let's call them the bad, right? The bad servants. It says, then another came saying, saying, Lord, here is your mina which I kept laid away in a handkerchief. The servant takes the mina that he's given, puts it in a handkerchief. And does nothing with it. Sticks it in his pocket. Goes on, goes on. With his, and he gives him the reason why he did this. He says, I know that you are a hard man, a severe man. You take what you did not deposit and reap what you did not sow. This is a servant that does not know his master. Not only does he not know his master, but he calls his master a thief. Right? He says, you take what you did not deposit, you reap what you did not sow. He has a wrong understanding of his master. He doesn't understand that the nobleman is a gracious, generous, benevolent ruler. But he sees him as this harsh, past master. Like, that, that's, that's you know, like it's mean and cruel, right? and, he, and he actually calls him a dishonest thief. So he does nothing with his mina and pulls it out of his pocket and is like, "Here, in this handkerchief, is a mina that you gave me," and he gives it to him. And then the nobleman says to him he said to him I will condemn you with your own words you wicked servant you knew that I had was a severe man taking what i did not deposit and reaping what it i did not sow why then did you put my money why then did you not put my money in a bank and at my coming i might have collected it with interest and he said to those who stood by take the mina from him and give it to the one who has the 10 minas and they said to him lord he has 10 minas I tell you, everyone who has has more will be given, but from the one who has not, even what he has will be taken away. Now there are different interpretations of what this this third servant represents. Who the ser- third servant? Uh, what Jesus is talking about? Some people believe that this is a Christian who is already saved, but does nothing or very little for the kingdom of God and the empowering grace that he's given when he is when he is. Uh, will be removed from him, and he starts to get worse and worse. But he is a Christian and will eventually be saved. But when he gets to heaven, he just won't have as much rewards as everybody else. right? I don't necessarily agree with this interpretation. Right? First of all, the taskmaster tells the servants, I will condemn you with your own words. And I know that in Christ Jesus, there is no condemnation. There is no condemnation in Christ Jesus. And I also, and the servant had zero increase to what he's given zero increase I started this sermon with a rich young ruler and Zacchaeus the ruler failed he failed at the end he, there was no transformation in his life and Zacchaeus succeeded because there were there, you saw the transformation there were there was change There was you see the change of his heart you see him like, I'm going to give everything half of what I have and I'm going to pay back fourfold you see the increase the dividends that he. Has in his life. But this servant had none. He just stuck it in his pocket and did nothing with it. And some interpret this passage as a third servant being someone that believes he is saved. He acknowledges with his mouth, but he fails to see the increase of the gospel in his life. Jesus himself told us that on that day, Many will come to him. They'll cry out, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name? Did we not cast out demons? Did we not do all of these? I taught Bible study, dude. Like, I did all of these things. And he's like, you know what? I never knew you. That's a scary thought. Let me tell you, there's a lot of so-called believers in church that claim to be believers, but we see none of the fruit in their lives. As a matter of fact, Jesus calls them to love, and they hate those that are different. Jesus calls them to be selfless and, and give and be generous, and they're just greedy, and they're cheating and lying just to have more gains in their lives. And Jesus is saying, "I want what I want to see in you is I want to see transformation of your heart." And then this this man had zero transformation. This is a scary thought. I believe that the people that interpret this as a Christian that's saved but like really does nothing is they're trying to. You know like trying to keep people from not being like not you know like getting offended and leaving because you know basically saying there's some of you in here that think that you guys can go to heaven but you're not that offends a lot of people they'd be like I believe in Jesus what what changes have you seen in your life oh I just I believe in Jesus right I'll go to church right but like what what are you doing how is your life different because you have Jesus like there's no increase I believe that there's a lot of people that want to make make the gospel like more palatable for people. so that oh, they could just have it, but you know what Jesus said, dude, you're going to be offended by me, right? You know that Jesus, the gospel of Jesus is one of the offensive things out there. And, and I believe that what Jesus is saying is that there's going to be a lot of people when I come back, and they're going to be like, hey, right here, right here, Jesus, and he's like, I do not know you. And that's the whole. That's the hard truth here. Jesus wants to see the fruit of the Spirit in them, but he sees not. This is a scary thought. I never knew you. That's why the Bible tells us in Philippians 2.12, Therefore, be my beloved, as you have already obeyed, so now, not only as in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. How to Work out your salvation with fear and trembling. For if for it is God's work in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Matthew seven thirteen fourteen 14 says, Enter through the narrow gate, for wide is a gate and broad is a road that leads to destruction. And many enter through it, but, shall, but small is the gate and narrow the road that leads to life, and only few find it. And allowing that gospel to grow in your heart and grow in your life is not easy. Jesus never said it was going to be easy. He said that it was going to be abundant. It was going to be full. You're gonna, we're going we're gonna to enjoy the joys that he gives us, the peace. But he never said it was going to be easy. And Jesus tells, I tell you that everyone who has, more will be given. But from those who, who has none, even what he has will be taken away. What you think you have will be taken away you have to first have the right understanding of who Jesus is, who he is to us. He has to be our lord. He he didn't die on the cross for for uh, for Jesus to be an afterthought, right? right? He he didn't die on the cross so that we he could be an app on our phone. Right? He died on the cross for him to be our lord. Jesus Christ our lord. And we have to truly receive him into our hearts like Zacchaeus. Because it's only when we truly receive Him is that what He deposited in us starts to pay dividends. When we truly receive Him, when we truly live our lives according to His words, it's going to start to produce the fruit and the the increase that the gospel is meant to increase in our lives. And lastly, I'm going to talk about the third category, and I'm going to say that this is the ugly, because the good, the bad, and the ugly. Who knows that terminology? (laughs) It was a Western movie from a long time ago. And it's the ones that reject the nobleman. He's going to this far-off country to become a king. And it's the ones that, that say, hey, we don't want this man over us. We don't want this man to be king over us. And Jesus tells this parable and mentions them because the vast majority of the crowd that followed Jesus the vast majority of the ones that, when he enters Jesus in the in the colt in the donkey, and then they lay down the palm tree, they're like Hosanna, Hosanna in the highest, right? They're all crying out, Hosanna! Right? He's a he's a king. And then just literally, like 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 a, 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 soon after that, right? They're all cru- crying out, crucify him, crucifying. Him. The same people that were crying out for Jesus, saying he's he's our Lord, he's our God. They're the ones that they we we don't have any other king but Caesar crucify him, right? We'd rather have Barabbas. They we, they, you know they're like the delegation that went to Rome to tell Caesar that they didn't want Archelaus over them, but instead they will reject the very son of God. And they will reject the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords, and they will actually help to nail him. This is, this is, by like, this kind of, this irony of everything, right? They're like, oh, yeah, we're like the people that go, we don't want this king over us. Well, that's you. That's what he's saying. Because the, the mass, the, the vast majority, I would say like 90%, even more of the people that were like, crucif- like, we're saying, Hosanna, he, like, Hosanna, Hosanna in the highest would actually be the ones that cry out, crucifying, crucifying, nail him to that cross. And Jesus says that the nobleman men tells the servants, but as for those enemies of mine who did not want me to reign over them, bring them here and slaughter them before me. It was gruesome. And we live in a world where more and more of the people around us aren't just not religious. No, A long time they were like, oh, I'm not religious. It's not only that they're not religious. We're living in a society and we're living in a world where more and more people are starting to hate the name of Jesus. If you mention Jesus at any kind of like a social function that's not like, you know, they're going to be like, ugh. People that hate church, hate the word church, hate the word Christian, hate the word Jesus. And they reject him. And the world is going in that direction. And although this parable ends in this gruesome scene, right, it ends in this really gruesome scene of like, you know, you imagine them just like being slaughtered in front of this nobleman. But this is still a parable of hope. Because we are living in the time between the noble man going away and the noble man coming back. And it is still not too late. There is still time. Even you, if you interpret this third servant as a true believer that is just lazy and unfruitful, there is still time for you to be a good servant. There is still time for you to bear fruit. As for the ones that reject Jesus, there is still time for us to change their minds. still time for us to love them and show them Christ. In us, hopefully, Lord. There's still time for us to take the mina that we have been given and make more. That's why it's a parable of hope. Nobleman has gone to a far off country and he has received his kingdom, and he is preparing for us a reward that we can't passively comprehend, but he's still not back yet. He's getting ready to return. And soon we're gonna have to give account of how we live on you know, the gospel of Jesus Christ doesn't keep you from giving an account. Right? People that think that gospel is a, is a ticket to heaven, they're gonna be—they're gonna be like—they're gonna be like, they're gonna have to face a harsh reality when Jesus comes back, because Jesus is gonna say, "Hey, you—you—you you, you have my gospel, but you're still gonna have to give an account." He says that all will give an account. And and yeah, a lot of us screwed up, and we covered by the blood of Jesus Christ. It doesn't mean that. We're not going to give an account. And it doesn't mean that we're not going to be given rewards when we're faithful. And he is coming back. Who believes that Jesus is coming back? Who believes you know, either he's going to come back or we're going to die and then we're going to see him eventually, right? Time, it's time. The time is it's not too late. We're still living in that time between the nobleman leaving and the nobleman coming back. And it's still not too late. Are we bearing fruit? Are we taking the minors that we're given, and are we just sticking it in our pockets, saying, "Hey, Jesus, I know that you know you died on the cross for me, and I know that you know I believe. I'm just gonna stick it in my pocket, and I'm just gonna live my life the way that I want to live. I'm just gonna, I'm just gonna do what I want to do. I know that, I know that I have my ticket to heaven because I said that Jesus Christ is my Lord. I'm just gonna stick it in my pocket, and then I'm just gonna do whatever that I want to do." Or are you putting that minor to work in your life? Are you allowing the fruit of the Spirit to grow and expand inside of you? Are you allowing, are you praying, are you seeking his word? Are you are you, are you seeking the presence of God in worship? Are you being transformed by the gospel and the Holy Spirit in us? Because it's still not too late. I'm not perfect. I, I never, I don't claim, as a matter of fact, I'm, I'm a pretty crappy person sometimes, right? But then I'm reminded, Jesus constantly reminds me, it's not too late. It's, never, it's not too late until it's too late. And then it should create in us this function and this desire. I'm like, oh, I have, I have to follow Jesus. I have to follow Jesus. Because we know that Jesus is coming back. And we have an opportunity to glorify our Lord Jesus with our lives, we have the opportunity to help increase his kingdom, we have the opportunity to receive amazing rewards when we see him. The one that extravagantly rewards his, his faithful. If the gospel is truly in you. Allow it to multiply and pay dividends in your life. And if you're not, if you're not seeing the fruit, you're not focusing on the one that gave you that mind. You have to focus on the one that gave us the gospel. If we, if we focus on Him, if we keep our hearts and our minds and everything our focus on Him, if we start to putting Him number one, I'm telling you. The gospel will
1: expand.
0: It's not going to just be a ticket to heaven. But it's going to be what drives you, and it's going to be the unction that transforms you into His image. Let's all stand up.